Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Thank you again so much for all your support, all your FedExes, all your emails, all your texts, your tweets. It's just incredible how great all of you are. I can't say it enough. This show is nothing without all of you, and it's just been so humbling how amazingly supportive you all have been and I am so grateful and I will never stop saying that and today is a really great day because we don't oftentimes get casting directors to come on the show and as I sit across from Deb Aquila I am really really excited because I am essentially three feet away from one of the greatest casting directors of my or any generation. Somebody who has worked with the most amazing film studios and respected television networks and outstanding writers and groundbreaking directors and producers. But not only that, She's somebody who's worked with some of the greatest and extraordinary actors and actresses of the last three decades. Yet, when I sit across from Deb, and for those of us who have had the pleasure to be around her, to hang out with her, to do business with her, or to simply be associated with anything having to do with any project that she's involved with. We all feel the same thing. 
feel that this is somebody who is grounded, who works in the trenches of the Hollywood system every day, yet she's on the side of the actor. She's on the side of finding the person who is going to be best suited for the project she's working on. But in the process, she always appears to have an eye on trying to figure out how to make a difference to every actor and actress that walk into the room and read with her. And that's something that distinguishes her from everybody else. She is just a person who it almost feels like every time you're with her, she shares the same excitement and enthusiasm and butterflies and anxiety and drive that she had when she first started in the business. And when you can be that kind of person, yet figure out a way to be a part of projects like Sex, Lies, and Videotape, La La Land, The Shawshank Redemption, you're talking about being around the most incredibly talented people in all phases of production that exist in this town. And this is somebody who started working with Steven Sodenberg in the very beginning of her career. We're talking about somebody who was hanging out with Stella Adler for six years and started as a teenager. At every phase of her life, Deb Aquila has worked with the four seasons of actors, writers, directors, producers, film studios, and networks. How does that happen? It happens because you have a personality that allows you to navigate through some of the most difficult situations in the world, a mindset that you're always going to persevere and find the greatest actor for the project, even if you feel you're on the verge of getting fired because it's taken a month longer to find that person and a personality and character that far exceeds the level of most people when they look in the mirror. And a level of heart and emotional intelligence that I would presume most of us, when we look in the mirror, have only a fraction of what Deb Aquila has. And so as I sit here about to interview her for this podcast, it seems pretty clear to me that she's the kind of person that 
that lives with the philosophy that no matter what happens, if the movie or television show she's working on turns out to be one of the greatest in history or turns out to be something less than what she anticipated it would be, when that project is finished, she has the mindset where she cleans the slate and she starts over zero zero with the same intensity that she did when she started the previous project. And if you can figure out how to have the kind of qualities that Deb Aquila has and how she navigates with some of the greatest people in her profession, if you can do that in your profession, I can tell you, I can assure you that you will have the opportunity to have the kind of career that Deb Aquila has. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and Seaman. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in showbiz and you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Uh, undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Really excited today. Can't wait to get underway with my guest, Deb Aquila, who is one of the most renowned casting directors in Hollywood and is legendary. So without further ado, I'll give her the introduction that she deserves She'll probably feel very uncomfortable, and by the time I finish, it's quite possible that the podcast will be over. But let us pray I can get her to stay. Born in Brooklyn from an Italian-American family, Deb Aquila obtained a scholarship to go to NYU, where she studied at the Stella Adler Conservatory and spent six years studying script analysis with Adler herself. If you know anything about acting, that is amazing. She then went on to work on the first two seasons of Miami Vice and several feature films, including Michael Mann's Manhunter and the historic Pope of Greenwich Village. Her casting director career began with Steven Sodenberg's Sex, Lies, and Videotape, and Uli Adul's The Last Exit to Brooklyn. Before she moved to Los Angeles in 93 to cast Frank Darabont's The Shawshank Redemption, Aquila completed over 18 independent films in New York, including Alison McLean's Crush and Steven Sodenberg's King of the Hill. In 93, Aquila became Senior Vice President of Features Casting for Paramount Pictures. During her seven years at the studio, she worked on incredible successes such as Primal Fear and Mission Impossible 2. After departing Paramount in 99, Aquila returned to the independent casting world with Sam Raimi's The Gift, starring Kate Blanchett, Keanu Reeves, and Katie Holmes, 
and What Women Want, directed by Nancy Myers and starring Mel Gibson and, Acad- and starring Academy Award winners Mel Gibson and Helen Hunt. Aquila taught script analysis for another legendary man in the acting business, Larry Moss, until forming the Aquila Morong Studio in 2011 with her partner, Donna Morong, where she offers acting classes and shares her unique insight into the industry and the craft of acting with aspiring actors and actresses. Her amazing list of credits also include La La Land, The Expendables, Dexter, The Shield, Now You See Me Too, Live Free or Die Hard, Crank, and the Underworld series. Aquila has been recognized 15 times by the Casting Society of America, winning three Artius Awards for excellence in casting for her work in Red, My Week with Marilyn, and La La Land. Please welcome. What an honor. I'm so excited to have her here, and I know you're going to be too. Please welcome my guest today, Deb Aquila. Hi. Hi, how are you? (laughs) I have a a near and dear spot in my heart for casting directors because I've been fortunate enough in my career where I've represented people who those people in your field have given their first shot to. And it's one of the greatest feelings in the world, they tell me, when somebody walks in and they get one of those first jobs. I remember... Jay Moore and Alexa Fogel in New York and him walking in her room. She had all these pigs all over her office. Oh, I love love her. (laughs) Great casting director. It's just these amazing things where people go out of their way and they fight for somebody who has never done anything in their lives. And the first thing I wanted to ask you, which I find fascinating, I want you to tell me, because I know there was a movie that I saw that you cast that completely shook my foundation and blew me away Uh about the power of hiring an unknown. And I want you to tell me, if I have it in my mind, the person who you remember as the unknown actor that you found and you broke and you gave the opportunity and you fought for that turned out to be one of the greatest actors or actresses of our generation. Do you mind sharing that with me? Who do I think you're talking about? Yes. Edward. Edward Norton, that's Mm -hmm. correct. Primal Fear. Yes. One of the things I heard was that he was up for the role and there was another actor that was much more established than him that was up for the role great actor. I had heard that Richard Gere was lobbying for the actor with the most experience because this was a big movie for him and he felt it was very important and I heard that he was concerned about whether he should surround himself with a person with less experience or somebody with more experience and it ended up being Edward Norton and to me it was a performance that I'll never forget. I still have goosebumps from it. Can you tell our audience about that story? I can't say from Richard's perspective, but um, I can tell you that Richard was very supportive. Um, uh, I, I that was an arduous process. It it was, um, and uh, New York. Even though I'm from New York, that's where I grew up. Was the very last stop on the Primal Fear Express. 
as we went through the United States. Now, I didn't actually go to each and every city, but, um, you know, uh, Trisha Wood at the time, uh, that's where, you know, we started together at Paramount when I was over there. Um, I joined Paramount right after Shawshank. I came out here with Shawshank and joined Paramount shortly thereafter. And Trisha, um, we met on Shawshank and then she came with me to Paramount. That's almost 25 years ago and we're still together. So we started on Brady Bunch was our first film over there, which was so enjoyable. I can't even <laughs> just just working with Betty Thomas and on that script and Gary Cole comes out of my bathroom wearing that wig and <laughs> there goes Betty off the couch onto the floor. Betty Thomas is most well known to the audience probably before that as an actress on right. NYPD Blue. Yeah, I believe. Hoblet. Yeah. What people don't know about Betty Thomas is she literally talks like a sailor. <laughs> and so every other word is like, <laughs> F this, F that, you mother effer. She was very, very behaved, very well behaved. She was absolutely a joy to work with and so funny. It was never, it just was never stressful. We just had a good time. And, you know, then you see that, you see Brady Bunch and you see the cast and, you know, that's... Um, it, it, it was a stress-free sort of situation as much as it was stress-filled because you had, you know, you had to match the TV show, people's memory of the TV show. They had to act. They were funny, and they had to look like it, it was tri a triple threat. So we worked our, our way through five months of, of casting, and I have to say she was, she was an angel. But, you know, what? I'd never been to a studio before. I'd never worked at a studio before. So, right, so I come out of independent film in New York. Sex, Lies, and Videotape was my first film. How do you follow probably one of the greatest independent films of all time when you're starting your career? It's like winning an Emmy Award on your first show and then trying to follow that up. Did you have pressure in your mind? Like, what do I got to do to keep this mm -mm. streak alive? Or you never thought about that? Never really thought about it. You keep your head down, do the work. You just keep going, right? I mean, when you're doing... You see, but just conceptually, when you're when you're in it, you know it's like the fly right on your <laughs> end of your nose. You know, you know you've got this fantastic script and Steven Soderbergh and uh, these wonderful producers and 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 Nick and 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 Morgan Mason and um, you just do your best. You know, you just and and again, but that was remember nineteen. We started casting that. I always have to go back to when my first daughter was born. I have two daughters, Jessica and Katrina. And Jess was born in 89. And I remember going to the Sundance Film Festival after, at, you know, when we were sort of premiering up there. Well, not premiering, but we were showing up there at Cannes. And I remember getting on the plane. <laughs> Sorry, Jessica. I remember getting on the plane <laughs> and telling this, the uh, flight attendant, um, that I was four months pregnant and it was twins. <laughs> I was seven and a half months pregnant and crazy and I shouldn't have been on that plane. And I got to Sundance and that was, yeah, walking down Main Street and you're almost seven and a half months pregnant and there's no air was an experience. But you don't know that when you're casting. You just know that you have this beautiful gift and this wonderful, this, this text and these great themes, right? So if I back up a little bit, um, 
that was uh, 88, so 87, just around 87 is when we started, mid-87. Um, and as with all independent movies, you you get an attachment, you lose an attachment, the movie goes, the movie stops, it stalls, it goes, it stops, it stalls, right? And then, um, you know, uh, the New York, as you know, especially in the in 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 that time, we all were very close. You know, the agents and the casting directors. I can't do my job without them. They're my partners. So, um, it was because of 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 three very um, dedicated folks that really believed in in the script and in Stephen. Um, they really fought and got James attached, and then. Um, Stephen and I went to, down to see Beirut, the play, remember that? Um, and then we saw Laura, and then she came in, and that's how it went, and then the auditions went. Anyway, you don't know that when you're doing it, right? You know that you have something special, but you, and we had no way to know what was actually going to be sexualized and videotaped, that event that it was, that it became, that seminal sort of important thematic film, right, that Steven, Steven Soderbergh, now we know it's Steven Soderbergh, right? But we didn't so, know them. No, but you know, his, that writing, those themes, you know, that man, he's, he's special, he's just, you know, it's like meeting Edward, right? Um, How did you meet Edward? It was a hard process. Took a long time. Um, it was a very difficult role, and you. What I was finding was that you would either get Roy or Aaron. Right? These are the two um, characters. Uh, but you know, it's the actor who's playing Roy, who's playing Aaron, because there's no Aaron. Um, oh, oops! Spoiler alert. <laughs> that's okay. If they haven't seen it, that's their problem. <laughs> So you're either going to get Roy or you're going to get Aaron, right? But the 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 difficult part of, of casting was to try to get somebody, an actor who understood that layer cake and understood sort of the backstory that would cause a person to behave this way, the, that need, you know, in this in this person to behave this way. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you.
to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. How does a young man have that ability? I happen to believe, and you can disagree with me, that nothing at Yale taught him how to play that character. I believe that it was innately channeled inside of him, and he had it, it all along. Edward is an intuitive person. He's, he's, he, when I met him as, as a young man, I got to know him a little bit. You know, he's, he reads everything. He's, he's just this, he's a he's big brain and sees characterization in a way that was unusual. For those people who aren't in the acting profession, when you go in to read for Deb, you're given what are called sides. And sometimes yeah. they'll send you the script, but sometimes the director is very private and doesn't want to show the script. Mm -hmm. Even the person, director, writer's agent won't be able to get it to you. Sometimes you'll just have these sides one scene, if they just want you to do one scene, it might have two scenes, it might have three scenes in it. They might be short, it might be one and a half pages, two, three pages, it might be a long scene that's five pages, whatever it is. And normally the casting director is reading with you and a lot of people make fun of casting directors for doing this, but they read very, very house of games. No, I disagree. Not all, especially those that are that that are. I mean, really take the training seriously. I was, I, you know, I was in conservatory for a long time, but a lot of my colleagues were. A lot of times, it's an instinctual thing. There's nothing written on the paper that says. Okay, the director is looking for you to accentuate this line here. He's looking for you to go soft here. Sure, but it, you know, Ed, Edward's a writer, right? So you know, it, and, and and as I said, you know, there, there's there's a script analysis part of 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 every actor's job, right? And and that's really important. Right to be able to, if you can't get a script, to be able to intuit and do whatever research you can into the project. If you can't get a script, but um, go to source material if you have to. Right, if you can't get a script, get the get the novel. If the novel doesn't exist, try to research source material because you have to be able to know about that past of that character. Right, because you can't have a present without a past. So, you know, he, he look, I. I'm not even going to say what, how many people we had seen until till that date because it's obnoxious. But we were searching, and we were really searching, and I was very worried. Now I was vice president of you know casting at the time, right? And I was ready to fire myself a couple of times because I could not find it. I couldn't find the the turn, truthfully, between these two characters, right? And this young man, New York was the last, that was it, right? I mean, we had we had seen so many VHS tapes <laughs> at the time, and there's, you know, stacking them <laughs> as you're making copies, you know, and, and poor Trisha and I would drive each other crazy and the stress. And, you know, and you'd, they'd come in from England, and they'd come in from Australia, and they'd come in from all over America and Canada, and there were four of us, like, culling through these tapes in the hope that we would get two, maybe three, that we could call back for Greg. 
um, Greg Hubbard was the director. And, you know, in the meantime, we're reading all day long, all day, every day, all day long. That's all I did was Primal Fear. And I mean, of course, I had to service the rest of the movies on, you know, that were going as well. But that was, it became critical. So I finally went to New York and we had, we were going to, we were going to do an open call, but that wasn't viable. And um, so what we did was we had, this space and we could it could you know sort of uh hold a lot of actors uh comfortably um without a lot of distraction so they could study their lines and their sides and you know the script was available i don't know that everybody read it um and we had uh a schedule that was probably unrealistic but we were going to try for at least 35 to 40 actors a day if not more um, and the very first session, uh, this young man walked in, I think it was the second hour. I don't really remember. It was a long time ago. And I stopped dead in my tracks because there it was. It was, it was truthful. It was well thought out. Every layer I needed was there. I should say me, I should say Greg, I should say the script, every layer the script needed, every layer that the actor needed was completely thought out. Edward had, uh, he was able to successfully go from this seamlessly from one character to the other character, from one character, because he knew why. He knew why that characterization, why he was behaving that way from the backstory, right? So... <laughs> I made a call and to Los Angeles when everybody was awake and said he's going to come back again. I talked to Greg and I talked to Gary Lucchese and um, Hawk Koch at the time, and I said we, I'm I'm hopeful but I'm guarded, <laughs> right? Because I didn't I didn't want to hype it and I also didn't want to get too excited and then get disappointed again. As a caster and director, when you're asking an actor to come back a second time, are you looking for the person just to come back in and, God, you're praying to Allah, just do exactly what you did before? Or are you looking for them to exceed the expectations that they delivered the first time and do better? I'm going to choose both answers. I'm also going to add one. Um, and that is consistency. This is a person that I did not know. This is a person who was fairly new, had never done a movie before, um, but had just um, sort of signed up with the Signature Theater Company in New York. You know, he's a very serious young man, a very serious actor right? about the craft. He really cared about it. What I was looking for was consistency, right? Was this a fluke the first time? You know, did was I exhausted? Maybe I lost perspective, right? Uh, so I asked him to come back, obviously, because I wanted to test all of that. <laughs> and he was better. And then you could, there's a thing that happens. You get like this joy, right? Um, when you see something so expertly executed, so brilliantly executed from a, a very young person who's so thoughtful, he was so thoughtful. That's what really impressed me as well. And 
he was just a hell of a nice kid. And I thought, okay, my, my set is safe. Because, you know, you, you also have to cast the set, right? And I was, and I always had Richard on my mind. I had Richard on my mind the whole time, right? Um, and I called um, Greg Hoblet and I said, when can you get here? And he hopped on a plane and Edward came back again. And that's when we really sort of got into it. And, and um, screen test was uh, arranged. There were two screen tests. The first one, um, he came out and had a screen test with Richard, who could not have been more supportive. He was amazing. In television, they don't let you test unless you've signed a 67-page contract that says what you're making for the pilot, what you're making every year for six, seven years. In film, you can do a screen test and not even have a deal in place. And they take the risk of knowing that if you get the role that you're going to negotiate fairly. But in television, they don't take that risk. Yeah, that, that is true. And I've been in both situations with film, you know, where we, we have screen tests in place. Um, to be honest with you, it was so long ago. So what is that? 19, the film came out in 1996, right? So this is around 1994. Okay. So 23 years. I don't remember if we put them in. I don't remember. I was so excited. I just wanted this young man to get in a room with Richard. I imagine there's more than one person screen testing because no one wants to just have one choice. You want to at least bounce something off somebody. And are you allowed to call Edward up and say, hey, buddy, everything was great. Could you just act a little excited on that line? I think that'll be better here. Well, no, I mean, you have to be fair to every, every artist, I think, right? I think after these many years doing this, it's it's I, I really want them to win, you know. I I do. Um we're we're here to service them and the script and our filmmakers. We it's funny, casting directors. We we have and it's gotten more complicated, of course, um now, but you know, you have you have the script, right, itself, and then you have the director, you have the studio, you have the agents, you have the managers. There weren't as many managers back then, but now there are many. You have a lot of people that need to be heard, and you have to hear them. You have to make sure they're heard. Um, and they have the studio. And then you have the execs with whom you work every day. And then you have, you know, for me, it was it was Michelle Manning was my executive at the time, uh, John Goldman, Sherry Lansing, right? Um, and all of these folks, ex extremely smart and experienced folks that um, know actors and love actors as well. So when he came out and he did that first screen test, um, he he was able to be completely present and, and do his job, even though he was opposite, you know, um, pretty gigantic movie star. And this is a person who had never on anything so that gave me confidence because really here's here's what was about here was the thing about edward he was confident and that gave me confidence right um so i know i can go to greg hoblet and say you know what 
I I, th I think this is good, right? I think I think we're all going to be okay. I think this I think this kid's going to be able to deliver, right? On a huge set, with all those pressures, right? Because you have to consider that as well. Um, as it turns out, um, Richard was a little concerned um, because he's the. I think the way he was sort of approaching it was, you know, he was he was it was extremely important to him that he be able to feel as paternal as possible to this kid, right? Um, and he was, it you know, it was he had already graduated from college. It was right on that razor line you know and we discussed it i mean there was no question about the talent there was no question about the preparation there was just no question about the intelligence and the commitment but there was a second screen test was necessary to just make sure that that would work and i have to say that came from edward so when you have a role that's so complicated you have the good angel one character and the devil and do you start the screen test off with the first scene okay we're going to start you off you're you're going to do the calm nice guy character of yourself first in that scene next you're going to do the scene where you are the nice kind guy and then you throw richard gear up against the wall <laughs> the last one you're just the devil i'm going to just rephrase that and just say you know that there's you know, Roy. Roy was a, an an abused kid, so you know. I don't think bullies are born. I think they're made. Um, and uh, so, so the fact that he had such empathy. You see, that's the other thing. He had such empathy for his characters. Um, but I think I think the order. I had to check. I would have to go back and check this. But um, I believe it started with the scene with Edward in the jail cell when he first meets Mr. Vale. I believe that's right. And then I think we went to the scene um, where we first see the turn with Mr. Vale. And then I believe those were the first, those two scenes, but it's been a very long time since I've seen that screen test. Um, though every time I see it, it just, it's really, there's an alchemy, there's, it's magical to see it so when you go and you find somebody like edward norton at the 11th hour and it all works out do you ever think to yourself god i, I wonder when the next time is am i ever going to find somebody this magical you know what's again funny? I, th I don't think of it that way i think they find us i don't think we find them i think they find us that that you know i i i, ha I know that's kind of wacky but they come to the craft because of their love for it. They come to the craft because of their talent for it. We're just happy to be there watching. And sometimes, uh, you know, little miracles like that happen, right? But look at how much he prepared. Look at, look at his work, right? It, it would have been eventually me or somebody else, right? I mean, it's, he, it, it, talent wins in, in, in my view. Um, that's really Pollyanna. <laughs> but I, I feel that way. I mean, I feel like this, and, and, and I know people might be listening to this saying, oh my God, that's so, <laughs> I don't, what is she talking about? I've been working at this for 10 years and uh, I was trained by Stella Adler. And if it were not for that woman and Sandra Lee and Ron Burris, I would not be talking to you, right? Um, and Stella always said, if there's anything else in the world that you can do, do it.
Just get out. <laughs> just get out. I mean, just, right? See, that's a really good model uh, for your conservator, <laughs> Stella. So, it, it, but she would say that. And the and I and I I was so young when I started with her, but I didn't understand what the hell she was talking about. But I did understand what she was talking about, and it's it's that passion. It's like I, I do not have a choice. I have to paint. I don't have a choice. I have to act, right? I have to tell stories. I don't have a choice. I have to be a writer. Um, and that's what she was talking about. But that took me so many. That took me some 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 years on the planet to to figure that out. And I think that that's what what drives these artists, and what must drive them. And eventually, we're going to cross paths. What other profession in the world is there where you can just fool somebody like you a couple of times, three, four times for five or ten minutes? Mm. You can have the greatest role of your life on television or in mm -mm. film. Just to give you an example. Lorne Michaels been doing this for over 40 years. Most all the people that he casts on his show, their resume is a blank page. Mm -hmm. They have nothing. They go in, they test for seven minutes, mm -hmm. and he either makes the decision you're on the show or you're not on the show. Mm -hmm. Sometimes he's not sure. He'll bring them back for another test a little mm -hmm. later in the year mm -hmm. or a year later. Mm -hmm. So maybe 14 minutes. But that's what we do, right? So I was with Stella for a, for a, for a while via NYU, you know, Tish. And I finished my, my undergrad and I, I continued, but I, I had to continue with her just because I had to continue with her and, and, and Sandra, um, mostly in the script analysis sort of right because a i believed in what she was doing and because i i don't have the chemistry <laughs> i don't have i don't i can't i i love to watch actors and performance because i as you can see how how long it took me to get here i don't <laughs> um i i'm very um shy about about that and i don't i have a lot of performance anxiety and it was um quite evident that I was not going to have a very happy life had I continued in that in that way um, and that my physical being might pay a price for that and there there she is again influencing right it takes one person in your life you know um, and I was lucky to have two and um, and she sort of reckoned and she, she asked me the question she said you know you're, you're throwing up before every performance um, is this the way you want to live your life? And I, I loved it so much, but my, I just didn't, it was too much anxiety for me and too much pressure. And I agreed with her. And that's when I started to move more into script analysis and sort of, you know, the Adler sort of approach to this craft is, um, it can be somewhat academic as well. This is a lot of research, a lot of backstory, and then you have to sort of connect the head and the heart, and you know. But you have to know the time and place of what you're doing, and you have to you have to know what you're doing. You can't do Ibsen unless you know what the hell's going on, in geographically, socially, in the time and place, right? So, um, and politically, and and um, I followed her advice, and that's the path that I took. And I th I think it I it it serviced me because I like you know, I sort of love to read and I love to 
draw, you know, do that research. But it it serviced me in the in in that I can see layers of preparation. But here here's where I was an arrogant little, you know, so and so when I was when I trans when I when I went, you know, there, there was a recession going on, and I thought I was going to move right into teaching. Um, and that wasn't meant to be because of economic circumstances and various, um, at the time, at the Conservatorian. Um, Sandra Lee introduced me to a casting director in New York named Bonnie Timmerman. It was the first two seasons of Miami Vice. Is that right? Gary Zuckerbrod. First it was Ronnie Eskel, then Gary Zuckerbrod. And I took over from Gary Zuckerbrod, bless his soul, and he trained me as quickly as he could. And then boom, we're in Miami Vice. You talk about actors that are prepared. You talk about actors who work hard, who read over and over and over again. And you were witness to one of the greatest performers of my generation who had no preparation, who always was on the verge of some kind of drug or something that he was involved in, but on screen, he took the screen and he was so powerful and it was charlie barnett who played noogie in miami vice he had club fingers he was about a five foot three african-american guy and every end of every finger was the size of his thumb and he had these beautiful fingernails with these white moons and it was so powerful but he couldn't read he was illiterate a story that you should know about charlie barnett is in 1980, he was cast and tested for Saturday Night Live and he got the role, but he lost the role because they found out he couldn't read cue cards. And he was fired and guess who was hired? Fate, Eddie Ed Murphy. Eddie Murphy. Yeah. And so you've worked with people like Edward Norton who prepare over and over again who were brilliant. You work with Charlie who Every scene he was in on Miami Vice, it seemed like he stole the scene. Right. And then he was fired or released or whatever after 13 episodes or whatever it was, probably because of that. But how do you deal with somebody like that? Well, I, that, that whole show was an, is an episode just in itself. Um, I mean, you know, you have Miguel Pinero writing, right? I mean, he did Short Eyes, right? So the theater was so vibrant when, it, you know, in, in the, especially when I... You know, I'm a kid from Brooklyn, and and I I was always somehow my dad <laughs> I don't know how he did it, but we were at Avery Fisher Hall, we were at you know Bam, we I don't know how he scored the tickets because he tried his best, but you know we didn't you know we we were not wealthy people, probably um, the higher end of the the lower income bracket and my father really believed in education and my mom and uh, he made sure my brother and I well educated um, that was really important to him and he made sure that we were good students um, whether we wanted to be or not and that had a lot to do with the um, educators that we encountered especially um, in my high school at the time I, I went I was pretty much raised by nuns uh, up and down and you know the, the elementary school education was wonderful um if if um they believed you know it was strict um and then i got to bishop carney high school um which i i still support and love with all my heart 
and you meet, you know, a, a, a sister like Sister Virginia Lake, who, you know, I just had brunch with two months ago, right? I mean, uh, who I will never forget because she was, what do you, what is it that you need? You, you, you need, I will get you this, I will get you. There was no subject we could not go near, even though it was a parochial school in, institution. Mind you, it was 1972 to 1976, right? So that was the time of such change. And she was a young nun, um, and she was in charge of young women. And she made sure that we were going to go out into the world uh, prepared and not fearful, right? And that was this woman. So this woman was a great influence on you. She prepared you to go out in the world and to not be fearful. Right. Yet your first foray into what you really want to do and you're throwing up before every performance. I think that is, that's just a thing that um, it was, you know, I, I don't know if it's chemistry or if it was just fear. So you don't blame the woman who was the nun? Are you kidding? We were doing like a different a different play every every month. I had no trouble whatsoever. It's so funny. I think fear begets fear begets fear begets fear, right? And I think if you don't, I think there might have been other influences there. And I think um, I was probably a little young to encounter someone like Stella. At the end of the day, I am grateful to have been. But emotionally, I might not have had a, enough emotional education to be ready for that. And only later could I look back and say, ah, I see what happened there, right? Um, but then fear builds on itself, right? So um, I was quite happy to take the other the other road, especially because it led. You know, I was introduced to Bonnie, and I worked my butt off, and you know, it was me, a temp, and Bonnie, and there was Miami Vice, and we cast the whole show from New York. As a manager, when a casting yeah. director like you would call and say, "Listen, we have something in New York. Are they living in New York? Or are they in L.A.?" And maybe this is wrong of me. I would always say to you or anybody yeah. of your ilk, I would say, "Deb, as far as I'm concerned, I just want them on the show. I don't care if they stay at a friend's house. I don't care what the deal yeah. is. I don't care if they're homeless." I don't want them living in L.A. to prohibit them from getting the sure. gig. But, you know, the, again, this is now 1982, right? So it's all such, it was all such a blur, right? You just had, you had to get these folks on a plane. But we cast mostly, unless they were folks like Glenn, Glenn Fry or, you know, um, that Bonnie would call up and somehow in her, she was like a magician, she would convince these, these folks to do the show. And... And look how she shaped television from then on in, right? I mean, that was that was that was Bonnie, and so so. But my job <laughs> was not only to tape and read with everyone, right? Because I read with everyone, and I still do to 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 this day. Um, but I had to do all the all the other work to support and get them on a plane, get them down there. And the, it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's just an episode, right? So they put them up at a hotel down there, you know, and then they fly them back. And sometimes like Julian Beck, right? He was part of the living theater, right? We had to get him in that episode and get him back because he had a show, right? So that's, that's what I meant by, you know, I sort of lost my train of thought before when it was just, you know, my, you know, I had a, a, a dad that somehow got us into New York City all the time. 
So we were seeing theater from a very, very young age, right? And it, that itself is inspirational. In, in You asked me a question before. You said, how do you know in 10 minutes or seven minutes, even if it's two and three callbacks? And I think that prepared me, right? There's a there's a, a thing that happens when you're not when you're not just sort of with your head down here, but when you're actually in a scene with somebody. Something else, there's an intuition, right? There's a there's a, a an energy, a chemistry there that that you you're speaking actor to actor. You know what I mean? You're you're seeing this this whole past right there in front of you. Are you wrong sometimes? That's what a callback's for, right? Um, but when I was when I went out on my own after I left Bonnie, um, I I remember this so specifically. There was a young actor who came in, and he was not prepared at all, and he he wasn't very good, right? Or so I thought, right? And I gave that feedback in the room. No, never. I would never do that. Oh God, no! I'd cut off my arm. Um, no, to the to the reps. Have I asked someone to come back and prepare if they need a little bit more time? Yes, I have done that <laughs> because that's a thing for me, right? I mean, yes, I have done that, but never, never meanly. Um, but I, I said to to the reps, I mean, you know, what 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 the hell was that, right? I mean, like this, I need this, this, this in the part, right? And. About a year later, that same person asked me to see that person again. And I went back to my notes, because that's what we do, the Marion Doherty, you know, thing. Marion Doherty yeah. was one of the greatest casting directors of she all time. She was the godmother. She was the godmother of her. And she's all. one of the first people who I ever did anything with. She cast my young client, Anthony Clark, in Dogfight with the late River Phoenix. But if you see, now, you know, the, the casting by documentary, thankfully, was made. But you see the the the, the, the detail on her notes, you know, and, and copious amounts of writing and notes. And we did that as well. So did Bonnie. And I didn't want to see this kid a year later, right? Arrogance of youth. And this rep said, you're wrong and you should, you should please, 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 please give this kid another shot. And I was just like, oh my God, yes, okay, just let's, you know, please, yes. And I was dead wrong. And I never made that mistake again. That kid walked in, he was fabulous. And I thought, wow, you're an arrogant young so-and-so, right? And I never made that mistake again, never. It taught me a great lesson. And that's a lesson that I have always given or, or tried to sort of advise um, any assistant or associate that comes up for, you know, through, through Trisha and I. Obviously, in every profession, we all want to be like brain surgeons and never make mistakes. Mm -hmm. Can you share a story where somebody came in and not somebody who just wasn't prepared, somebody who was prepared and really prepared it and they just whiffed? Another person might have thought they did a good job, but you just thought, don't quit your day job, or else you might have thought, you're good, but you're not right for this, and I don't think you're at the level right now where you're going to make an impact on this business, 
and a year later you see them as the lead in just say like how you see Matthew McConaughey he's not doing anything and he's the lead in a time to kill and you're like holy shit where did this guy come well, you from see that leads back to that story right so you know it, maybe they weren't ready at that time right maybe they weren't right for that role you can always recognize talent right um sometimes they're not ready in your profession are there people like yourself who don't recognize somebody who goes in over and over again and he just doesn't get the gig and then something happens and another casting director says i know you've had tough luck here but i'm going to give you a shot in this one and they score when given the shot but they're just a bad auditioner oh for sure yeah i mean that's it's but that's why you have to see it's a it, again it's a complicated question yes for sure but that's why you have to see as much as you can you have to sort of casting's hard <laughs> it's you you have to see everything you have to you you have to be very present when you're in that room and if you're on the fence or if this person you know here here's something i i did learn there are certain representatives with whom you work over and over again and if they say to me pay attention and they had a bad audition um just like that example of that young man um i'll immediately ask for supporting material because maybe some people are bad auditioners right they get really nervous in the room which you can sort of feel when you're there you know people like clint eastwood won't even go in the room anymore a lot of folks you know they have audition anxiety too um you know that um it takes a great amount of empathy to be in that room, right? I mean, if you're good at what you do and not just, you know, dismissive. I, I don't appreciate that. These these folks have a really hard job. And you work with so many great, great directors. Has there always been one director, like Letterman used to say when he had a show, he always wanted certain people on the show and they didn't get on the show. And then finally, when they were on the show, he was overjoyed. Are there certain directors that you look at that you have enormous respect for? And before you retire in 40 years, you'd like to work with? Look, we've we've there there are a plethora of directors with whom I, I, I would love to experience, you know, hearing them in a room. We've um, we've been pretty blessed with with um, directors who really love actors. I think I had one or two experiences in my career, and I have to say this honestly, where I did not enjoy the experience, mostly because um, I'm again I'm going to say it again: those folks that put put it on the line every day in every room they have a really hard job we have we have to we have to be there to help them right I, to create a safe enough environment where they can actually do their job well right now if 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 you want to say non um altruistically uh you're fabulous in the room i get to see i get to go home and see my kids right if it's um <laughs> If it's just completely solipsistic in that way, okay, great, you did a great job. I don't get to see my kids. But, you know, um, we're, we are there to support. Now, 
again, that's going to sound Pollyanna, but there's a there's there's a belief system with regard to those actors where they know that they are safe in certain rooms. Now, I don't, I can't say for every room, right? And I know that television is very different. Um, and we had a, we had our experiences in television and. That took a lot of getting used to for me. Even in the insanity that was the casting process of Miami Vice, there was never once um, uh, was it was an, did I feel an actor felt unsafe, right? Most of the time it was just Bonnie and I, right? And she, she she's just, she's just, um, she was like a big mama bear, you know? And I think that's where I sort of learned that from, you know? Um, but you want these folks to do well, right? You're sitting in the room. You've got your assistant at the camera. There's people waiting to come in. You've been doing this for two hours that day. There's a role. There's the sides that everybody's reading. You're reading with them. In your mind, if you could give anybody the keys to the kingdom besides the preparation and hard work wins and do the work and all that there's no rule that's that's the problem so you walk into to my room right if i if i've got a whole team sitting there uh i i'm thinking specifically the last you know just i'm just going back like say the last 2 3 years um you know, for for somebody like Damien, right, on La La Land, it was, um, again, one of those experiences that were joy, that was joyful, right? Uh, the process of creating each new experience every time another person walked in, you, you could, he was like a kid in a candy shop. It was just, he was uh, a delight to have uh, uh, you know, in our, in in uh, sit, sitting there, right there, <laughs> you know, on our furniture, and participating with these with these actors and actresses, um, with his whole self present, right? Uh, I've had a couple of experiences. Um, I'm thinking about in television where that wasn't the case, and it it. Um, my protective energy became stronger towards the actors in response to that energy right and then i get and then i got a little mad <laughs> right because i didn't i didn't appreciate that from you know sort of a dismissal you know they might not be right for the role but you know they're good at what they do so have a little respect right if i feel like there's an actor that comes in my room and I feel they're being obsequious, that's a trigger for me. I don't like it, right? I don't, I really just want you to, come on, let's let's make the meatloaf together. Let's let's do this, right? You know what I mean? I, I'm, be polite, be respectful. If you, there, there was a, a very difficult movie we were doing, emotionally difficult and I would make sure, especially if I had my team, uh, you know, producer and the directors, you know, in 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 the room, um, 
since I always read with everybody and I have somebody behind the camera, right, that's right there to make sure everything is running smoothly. For that particular movie, I would go out to the waiting room myself. I'd make sure that people were okay, right, if they need anything. And I would walk the actor in myself. I, I tell you what, what you know, <laughs> Just, just, just a, just a, a, a bit of encouragement that way. Do you know what I mean? Makes the difference between a, a good experience and a bad experience for them as they walk into a room, right? The nerve level, sort of. They, you can feel them relax a little bit. You know, hey, we're going to do this together. So, I, you know, if they had to be, it was an, very emotional scenes, and I would make sure to sort of check in with them. Do you want? to chat first or I think this person's ready to go I would walk in the door and say to my team I think we're ready to go um okay and then we chat after now if a person comes in and they're comfortable making that transition to sort of chatting first you know and then they're comfortable enough to get in back into it you know and they can flat that's fine that's their choice um, things that um, you shouldn't do. Don't be discourteous. Sometimes, especially in television, the wait is long. If you have to reschedule, reschedule. But know that we're doing the best we can as well, right? Sometimes we can't control it all, right, as much as you'd like to. Sometimes a person has to take a phone call and all of a sudden we're 25 minutes behind schedule, right? Um, that was the hardest part of my job um, when we were, you know, involved in television, uh, if that would happen. And I would feel the pressure of those folks waiting and the time, the time, the time, you know, because imagine what they're feeling as they're sitting in there, right? So you feel that pressure. Do you like it when somebody walks in and makes that original joke that lightens the mood before it starts or do you prefer they don't do that you know it all depends on the on the situation sometimes they come in and they make a joke just when it's so tense and you're like oh my god thank you <laughs> <laughs> you know and everybody and it lightens the room up you know but i think they have to read the room as much as we have to read the room what i tell everybody is this the bottom line is and again please shut me down it doesn't matter whether you tell a joke up front or you don't. Doesn't matter if you talk afterwards or you don't. If your performance, when you start your first word until you finish your last word, is better than everybody else that's auditioned, and everybody in that room believes you're mm -hmm. better than everybody else that auditioned, it doesn't matter what personality you had at that point because at that point they're looking for the best athlete available on the board well i, I i'm going to say yes and no um yes we're looking for the best actor we're looking for this you know we're looking for, for that particular role um yes but as i said previously i'm also casting my set right and and there's just too much money at stake but you can always have the meeting with the person afterward just to see how they are as a person. Well, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And a lot of these people we know, right? I mean, we know them for years, right? So, 
And if they're new, you sit down, you definitely sit down before, right? You know, and, and meet with them and talk with them. And the directors do that too. Here's what I don't like. When you come in and willfully do something to distract, right? I got a lot of that on Primal Fear, especially because young folks, you know, the, 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 the young gents that came in, if they weren't prepared, it was like they would do this little, like, look over here. <laughs> Don't pay attention to the fact that I'm really not prepared. And that, that really was, that wasn't good. One of my favorite audition stories, and it's not even involving a show that you would say is real acting. And it doesn't involve somebody who's a household name, but I'll never forget it. A guy who created the show Punked, Jason Goldberg, mm -hmm. he auditions all the actors that do these acting behind the scenes where there's only one take. You only have one shot to sell it. <laughs> That's funny. And these people are pranking yeah. somebody and they have to act the part. And like you say, you know, I was calling about this actor named Kirk Fox, who is in his 40s. And he said, he's too old. I said, just have him come in. Please just have him come in. And Jason's process for these shows is the person just is sitting in the room. He walks in, he shakes their hand, he sits down and he <laughs> says, tell me a story. Oh, yeah, sure. And so I don't know where that originated. Mm. And they'll tell a story. And if they act out the story or they tell the story in a way that's so magical and special, mm. he'll hire them. So Kirk Fox is waiting. He's waiting. And you talk about the wait. It was a longer wait than normally sitting in this office. Finally, Jason Goldberg comes in. He shakes his hand. He sits down. He says to Kirk, tell me a story. And Kirk looked at him and said, you tell me a fucking story. And Jason Goldberg stood up, he shook his hand, and he said, you're hired. I always think that when you're doing something and you're going into a room, not only do you have to work hard, but you have to make a choice. You have to make choices to how you read the script and how you interpret yes. the script, and you have to take risks. And Kirk Fox, even though it's not a straight acting job, he took a risk. He could have lost the job immediately, but he got the job. And I think a lot of actors need to take those risks. I agree with you. Um, Edward certainly did that in Primal Fear. Um, I have to say, uh, way, going way back, um, you know, when uh, a young Brittany Murphy, a young Adrian Brody, you know, these young folks in New York as they were coming up, you know, uh, that would happen a lot. There was a lot of, a lot of that fresh sort of, um, sort of take on, on, on what they would do. And they were so unique to they, their own persona, who they are was so unique that it already gave it a different spin. So I, I kind of believe that you want to know the playground you're in right so that you know where you are now okay so i i can hear like a lot of actors thinking yeah but i don't have the script right so how the hell am i supposed to build this world from the sides there's a way to do it um where even if you're wrong you've made a choice so you build your house and then you get in there and you de start decorating right but you have to do it from the bottom up right and you really have to do it um and i'm i'm again a I've done it 
my entire career what she taught me. And uh, I do it for casting. If I can do it for casting, and there are how, you know how many roles, you can do it for one role, right? And you can take all kinds of clues from what other characters say about you, what you say about yourself, what the author says about you, right? I mean, you can build a foundation, and from that you can bounce. And then you you build it from your lens, right? And that that um, we all we all move through this crazy world, and it hits us in our own way or in our own unique way. You understand what I mean? As long as you do justice, I'm not saying personalize it in that way and use substitution. I'm not a fan of that. But um, as you honor what is written, right, and you try to honor what is written and what that message, what that author spent, how many years writing, right? But you're seeing, you know, you're we all we all move through time and space in a different way, right? As uh, you know, as long as you do that foundational work, make it yours and go. You're involved in one of the greatest films of the last decade, or at least it was just so interesting and unique in La La Land. You're a part of this special group of people. Presumably, you're either in the Academy Award Theater or you're watching at home, and something happens that has rarely, if ever, happened to anybody in the world, let alone a casting director or actors or actresses. The universe, funny. Um, so Trisha and I are Academy members, right? Um, and Trish, uh, we we sort of decided, hey, you know what? And we've never done this before. Well, that's not true. I did it once before um, on Shawshank, I think. We put in, f and Primal, um, so I lied. Um, <laughs> so you see, there it is, fake news. So um, we put in for the lottery, right? And then we forgot about it. And we both got the lottery at the same time. So you had like our, our offices were all next to each other, right? Um, we're in Hollywood and Vine in the old Taft building. And you could just hear like one X, like, ah, right? And then you hear like from the other, <laughs> ah, right? And then <laughs> we come running into each other's rooms and like we, we, got, we got the lottery. And, and uh, oh my God, so we each have two tickets. And it occurred to us pretty much at the same time, holy shit, let's, let's all go. And so we did. And um, we, we decided to get dressed at the office. <laughs> <laughs> so we all met at the office. And we all got dressed and got ready at the office. Um, and then hopped into Trisha's car and off we went. We just, we, we could have walked. We're a mile away. So we did. And then we're in there and we're just having a great time. Um, and then that event happens. And it was the strangest damn thing, right? I mean, we just were so, it, it was it was very confusing as well. And so you're hugging each other, jumping well, up. Well, no, I mean, we just... Right. I mean, we just, we stood up and we just, and then sort of from where we were sitting, like we were in, you know, we could see sort of the wings and there was a lot of activity with, uh, you know, gals and guys in, with headsets. And I thought to myself, oh no, no, please no. Right. <laughs> it's the first thing I'm thinking of. Right. 
and I look at Trisha and she's already up, <laughs> right? <laughs> and I now I'm I'm sort of already and we're sort of and then you know it happens and then Jordan, right? I mean elegant, classy, right? So I mean grace under fire. He see he takes it and he hopes that the cameraman will see it and they and the and the camera person does see the card and he said well, we didn't win you won and so you're leaving the venue with complete confusion um and and we're we're sort of like well, what just happened <laughs> what happened <laughs> and we actually had to go home uh, after after we went, you know, um, and and saw everybody at various places, we we basically had to watch it back because I I think it was it's very different when you see it on television than when you're actually right there. Hey everybody, I am really really excited. We have a new sponsor, AquaTrue. This is the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. I know it sounds complicated, but let's put it this way. This is something that can take your tap water and can turn it into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You're going to be enjoying the best water, the safest water and if you haven't read all the news about Flint, Michigan, in every single state, there's over 100 chemicals found in tap water that are not even regulated by the EPA. Many of them are cancer-causing and have lead in them. So you can go to a special website that we've set up called industrystandardwater.com. It takes you directly to the AquaTrue site. And if you get this product, you're going to get $100 off. Just type in 100 in the special code section. You'll get that money off and you'll start saving. You can put a whole huge bottle of Diet Coke in this machine. And 10 minutes later, it'll come out with the best tasting water you've ever had. I got one of these products. It was unbelievable. Industrystandardwater.com. And you'll be enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever tasted. All right, I want to go way, way back. Take me back to I where you like grew up. being hypnotized. <laughs> way, way back. Take me way back to where you grew up was the socioeconomic dynamic. I know you talked about your dad not having a lot of money. And what was your first inspiration of getting into the business? And how did you end up meeting Stella Adler, one of the most legendary people in the business? You know this 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 lady this this wonderful educator in this high school in Brooklyn and 60th Street and Bay 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 Ridge you know and there she is um, smart as a whip this one and uh, let us dream she let us dream um, I said that to her at brunch a couple of months ago. Said you let us dream, and I want to thank you for that, and I hope you're still doing that for the for the girls that are there. And from this, the um, the you know when I when I sort of look at at uh, where a lot of these careers of these young women are going, I think she's still doing a pretty good job. Um, Brooklyn back then was different than it is now. Uh, it was kind of a magical place to grow up, and it was a really hard place to grow up. 
Uh, it was pretty uh, factionalized. Um, you know, as a as a young woman growing up in uh, different areas of of Brooklyn, you 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 learned. Uh, you, you just got a streetwise uh, sense of the world in addition to um, that other side, which was, you know, sort of a, a strict sort of parochial school education. And then there was the family dynamic at home. You know, um, I come from an Italian-American um, family structure, so there was that. Um, and and it wasn't just that my dad, it wasn't a money thing. It was just that, it, you know, it was a cer sort of circumstance that I won't go into that um, never allowed my father to actually realize his own dreams. And I think he was a hell of a writer. And I think that he pushed us um, uh, to make sure that we would never feel like he felt, you know. Um, so when I went to Bishop Carney, um, I made I made damn sure that I explored everything that they had to sort of offer us, as most of these very amazing women, these strong women did. Um, I got into NYU. Uh, when I got there, um, I knew that it was the dramatic arts, and I didn't know which part of it, you know? Um, and when you go when you enter Tisch, there were five different sort of schools that you could study at, um, and it was recommended to me uh, by one of my advisors that I audition for the Adler Conservatory. And I had no idea what they were talking about, right? It was I think at the time it was Circle in the Square, Strasbourg, Adler, uh, and there were two others: Ron Argerlandis uh, Theater Without Walls, I think it was called, and then there was one other I can't remember. Um, and I auditioned for Stella, and I—I I was so young. I was so young. I was—I was—I was 17, and in I walk into this room, and there's this woman sitting in a throne, which to me was absurd. Think about where I was raised, right? So I didn't—I didn't. That—that I didn't, that looked so. Um, we were in just in this in this odd room, and there was this throne, and she looked incongruous to the rest of her surroundings. And I thought to myself, "Where the hell am I?" Right? But I was also nervous, and I did this monologue. I don't remember any of it. I don't remember any of it except that I do. You know, Stella was a beautiful woman. She was very tall, and she had these dancing blue eyes. They sparkled like diamonds. And I remember, <laughs> she must have thought I looked like an alien um i had a very very thick brooklyn accent very thick and um you know it's sort of the red hook and the bensonhurst right and she said to me um she's sort of zeroed in on me and she said to me who are you and why are you here and why should i accept you into my school and I don't really remember what I said to her because I was so scared. But I do remember standing because she was on this throne. And I, she was like, so I needed to stand and, and sort of show her 
right? Everything that Virginia Lake had taught me, right, was I think I I think I can do well here. I think I think I have I'd like to learn from you and I think that I need to get out of here because you're scaring the shit out of me. And we had this exchange and then she asked me to do the monologue again and she asked me if I knew what it was about and what I thought thematically it was about and that I could that I could answer. Then I felt like, okay, I'm home. You want to talk time and place? You want to talk themes? You want to talk about the author? Because I know I read all about it, right? And those dancing eyes, then she smiled. And I thought, okay, I can do this. And then I did it again. And then I needed to leave <laughs> really fast. And then she called me back and she asked to sit with me and talk with me. And she asked a lot about my parents and my brother, who at the time was at Juilliard. Um, he's now the um, provost of a university. So uh, dad and mom did okay. <laughs> And she took you under her wing and... Yeah, I mean, we uh, I was pretty much terrified of her most of the time um, and did my best to, un to under that pressure, under that cloud of fear, um, which I swore to God I would never... Mm -mm. That was the thing that I was never going to take. But then she could turn around and love you and nurture you and just encourage you just with a smile. So how did you know that casting was for you. I didn't know what, who stuff was. I didn't know anything. So how did it happen? Because of Sandra Lee. Because um, she was a great teacher. Um, but who teaches casting? No, no, no. She told me, she, she's, <laughs> Sandra and I were laughing about this again in April when I saw her. Um, she um, just had this instinct. She said, I think you'd be good, kid. I think, <laughs> I think you'd be good in this job. But you still had to get a job somewhere. Well, no, she set me up with Bonnie. But you still have to go interview for Bonnie. Yeah, I did, but I don't, again, it was just so fast. I mean, I think she really just needed somebody fast. Because back then, instead of a computer, you had boxes and boxes of headshots and videotapes all over the office. Boxes, office. headshots, binders, which I still keep today, even though Trisha tells me I shouldn't. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm reticent to go digital, but I do. But I still like my paper. But, yeah, Bonnie hired me, and um, that was, then we were off to the races. There was no time. There was just no time. I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK. It's centered on the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. Go to ikilledjfk.com, look at the trailer. Buy this documentary, I guarantee you, it will blow you away. All right, your proudest moment in show business. Ugh, I don't, what? You don't have one? I do, this is too much pressure. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> really? Proudest moment? When I had my babies. <laughs> Wasn't there something in show business, one thing that stands out? La La Land, definitely Primal Fear, Shawshank. Sex Lies, um, my experience at Paramount, and uh, 
learning uh, during those almost eight years. And then going back to a studio, I have to tell you, going back to a studio after, after at, at, as a mature adult with a lot of experience to sort of sort of fortify me, right? And and everybody that my one of my proudest experiences, all right, you want to ask, is keeping this family at Aquila Wood together during that god awful recession. And somehow, somehow making it through. I don't know how we did it, but we did it. And we're still together. So I mean that's I'm proud of that. And uh and then being at Lionsgate, I mean they're really awesome, I have to tell you. And I've done three movies there, amazing company. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how it fueled you to get to the next level or a higher level in your career. I remember one specifically. I'm not going to name names. After, after Sex Lies, I started to come to Los Angeles more and more because studio films started um, to hire me. And I had to do New York and Los Angeles. At that time, they had the budget for those things. So they actually put you on a plane and housed you. So, uh, and I do remember working on a film. Uh, again, I didn't know this place at all very well, right? I, I, it, was, it was all New York all the time. And uh, I do remember uh, an experience where it was the first day of the first round of sessions, and it was um, the actors were not, they just weren't being respected the way I thought that they should be. You, you just, it just didn't happen that way in New York. Um, and I, I got a little upset, <laughs> and I was very disappointed by the behavior um, and so I said something. I was really, again, 30, I, I must have been in my early 30s. And to see a, an actress, um, a, a talented, very well-known actress being dismissed, that was a low point for me because I couldn't do anything in the room to protect them. But I could when they left. And I did. Last question. What advice do you have for the young actor or the young actress trying to make a difference and take their career to the next level? And also, what advice do you have for the young person who wants to be a casting director and wants to break into your profession? And how do they do it and get to do the kind of significant work and work with the kind of directors and actors that you've been a part of? As far as, as the, the actor-actress side, you know, to just, here's, here's something, here's something that I would want to say to, to actors and actresses. You know, dancers dance every day and musicians practice three to four hours a day, right? If you are not in class, right, at least once or twice a week, you're doing yourself a disservice, right? No, and, and nobody, you, you have the right to act. Nobody has to give you permission to act. Right. So just you take it on, you empower yourself and that it's either by class, right. Putting up, putting up plays. There is a great theater scene in Los Angeles. I can't stand when people say theater in Los Angeles. I 
I'm a New Yorker and I say that. So, uh, right, but, and you have the ability today, which didn't exist two years ago, of creating your own content. In any way that you're going to chase that dream, do it. And for like a young person who casting wants directors. to be a casting director? Um, in turn, uh, know your film history. Boy, the, I'm going to sound like a real old lady when I say this. Don't waste your time. Just, just, just don't waste time. Make use of, of every second. And if it's not watching something in the theater, it's watching something on, on you know, cable at home. Um, uh, watching television, knowing if you're going to be a casting director today, you have a lot to watch and a lot of actors to, to, to learn. And go to the theater, please go to the theater. Because that's when you're going to learn about acting. If you, like if, you, if you don't come from a conservatory, if you're not trained in, in that craft, and you're coming up, say, through a business school or something, and you really just love this, that's the way you're going to learn about acting. Deb Aquila, I'm so grateful that you came here. It sure. meant a lot to me. Thank you so much. Our audience is going to be blown away by this. Really, they will be. Thank you so much. Okay, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message a review on the iTunes comment review section and one of these people will be a lucky winner and they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions or else if they're out of town, out of state or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on Christar31, because there were 30 other Christars. So Christar31, June 26, 2016, titled Can Be Life-Altering, five stars. All right. And Christar31 says... Great podcast, unpurchasable insight. Barry is not only highly entertaining, but also more educational than any professor. Oh, that really means a lot. Thank you so, so much, Christar31. Congratulations. You are a winner. Special thanks to our new sponsor, AquaTrue, the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. Check it out. Go to industrystandardwater.com. Takes you directly to their website. Type in the code 100. Save yourself $100. I have one of these. It's amazing. Start turning your tap water into the best tasting water. Industrystandardwater.com. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money, drop that fancy corn. All the people love you, cause you're going for life is for the dreamer. It's never quite over till it all feels.
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.